You're listening to audio from Hope Fellowship Church of Jaffrey, New Hampshire. If you'd like to check out more resources or to donate to this ministry, please visit hfcnh.org. This is episode nine of season one. We have one more episode left in season one, and then we'll be moving on uh, to uh, season two. And we'll be opening up the New Testament. As we've been tracing the story of God, uh, the story of, his, of God is how he redeems the world back to himself and saves mankind. From Genesis to Revelation, we've been walking through, and today we find ourselves in the prophets. We began with creation. We then followed into Genesis 3 in the fallout of sin. And then we zoomed out and examined the grand stories and meta-narratives of these big, big stories and yet stories we're very well familiar with, the Tower of Babel and Noah's Ark and, and how they fit into God's plan. And then we looked at how God zooms out but zooms in onto this little, little guy named Abram, how he calls this little guy Abraham and makes him into a big, very important figure in the scripture And as he expands his family to become a nation, as through this man Abraham, through his faith, he would bless the entire world through the family of Abraham, through the seed of Abraham, there would come a nation, a people that would deliver the promised ruler, the promised one who would save the world from their sin. So from Abraham, we find that this promise is passed down to Jacob, whose name is changed to Israel. And in Israel, we find the tribes of Israel that are in uh, Egypt, then rescued by God through the hand of Moses as he has this amazing exodus in the 10 plagues. And, and as they escape into the wilderness through the Red Sea, he leads them into a land that they reject through their lack of faith and trust in God and banishes them into the wilderness and yet rises up a new leader, one of Joshua, We know his name is the same as Jesus' name. The Lord is salvation. Joshua is this figure that represents this victorious rest that he leads the people of God into the promised land to rest. And yet they do not complete the story as it takes then after this the time of judges and turmoil of sin and rebellion. And yet they lead them into this time of the kings. And then the time of the kings where we have the beginning, the first king of Saul, then David, then Solomon, and then Josh uh, Prather last week led us into a message of, it was a very positive message, right? Everything went well last week. Were you guys here last week? (laughs) It was a wonderful message. Josh did a great job laying out this next time of the kings where after King David and Solomon in the temple, it all is downhill from there and the kingdom splits and divides and there is bad king after bad king after bad king. And he did that story uh, illustration with Alexander and the very bad, no bad, whatever, good day, whatever, right? It was a bad day. And, and, it, and it was that storyline over and over. As we saw this, yes, cyclical rebellion of judges, but also in the kings, king after king failing to measure up to this king that would really produce this peace and lasting rest for the people of God. They continued to choose idolatry and and they used violence and they neglected God's law and they worshiped false gods. And yet we find even in that dark time, even in that dark storyline of the people of God neglecting the worship of God, neglecting the temple, 
and God judging them through exile and bringing them away into the foreign lands, we find that even in that, the lamp has not gone out. The light is not gone. God continues to keep his promises, and yet it's natural for us to ask when you read through 1 Kings and 2 Kings, 1 Chronicles and 2 Chronicles, you read into the history of the Old Testament, it's natural for us to ask us, where is the hope in all of this story? I mean, I know we eventually get to Jesus, but how is it that we don't lose hope when we're reading through parts of the the Old Testament? And what was God doing during this time? Why did he prolong and wait so long to bring the story of the New Testament? Why is it that this is going on? Especially it was helpful for me as today we're gonna be looking at the prophets, uh, a few of the prophets. Uh, When you look at the storyline that Josh spoke on last week and you look at what's going on in the history of Israel and the kings and king after king after king, I feel like for me it's very helpful to think of it through man's perspective in that manner. That when we look at the kings, we look at chronicles, we see man's viewpoint, man's perspective. This king did this, this king did that. And then we skip over to the prophets. All of a sudden it's like you begin to look down a different tunnel through a different lens. You begin to see what God thought of those situations. You begin to see the situations of the kings and chronicles through the lens of God, through his actual words that he delivered through his prophets. So we see kind of this man's perspective in kings and chronicles and God's perspective in the prophets that are happening at the same time, but different side and different viewpoints where God is teaching his ways, his desires, his words. He is preaching his truth. He is um, delivering his revelation, his plan, and in his way. So this week, we're gonna be looking at a few of these Old Testament prophets, this uh, passages about judgment and wrath, and yet, I would say, passages that are powerfully, overwhelmingly loving and forgiving. And we see that even in the dark times, even in those darknesses, we see, we see uh, often a light that is flickering. We see a hope that has not gone out. Josh mentioned last week King Jehoiakim at the very end of his reign when he's taken away into exile, the, the nation is destroyed and laid waste to and at the very end of Second Kings, the very last passage speaks about how King Jehoiakim was taken. His prison garments, his prison rags were removed and he was placed at the king's table there in Babylon and there he ate at the king's table for the rest of his life. You get a sense that something good is happening in the future. God has not left his people and abandoned them. He still has a plan and he will keep his promises. And this is what we cling to and hold on to even in these times when it looks dark. And so, like I said, the prophets, what we're looking into today, I would say is probably some of the most challenging passages in the entire Bible. It's probably the most confusing passages in all of the Bible. Uh, The minor prophets, major prophets, take your pick. Uh, They are probably the most in-depth, challenging writing to read and understand. And so I'm gonna do my best today to try to give you a good little synopsis of different passages throughout the Old Testament of really what's going on here in the prophets, what they're saying, why they are valuable and important. And maybe you yourself have tried reading through some of the prophets and you get kind of lost in the weeds of the imagery, of the illustrations, of the confusing aspects of the visions and the dreams and the prophecy and the history and the, the, the people and the characters. That's quite an epic storyline that can be challenging for anybody to understand. 
And then as we look at them, we find out they're not all listed in nice chronological order. Uh, they don't go A to Z. It's kind of major, minor, and which one's important, which ones should you focus on, and it can be challenging. There's 17 books on the major and minor prophets, and yet I find them incredibly valuable to my own relevant today spiritual life as I've been studying them over the past several months and looking at some of these passages in particular that we're gonna look at today. I found them having extreme relevance for today. It's written a long time ago and in a character or in a language and in a time period and culture that is challenging us for us to grasp. I find the beauty of these passages speak not only into the New Testament and the Old Testament but even to us today. And they speak relevance but they speak truth because they tell us a lot about God. I think today's message, and in so many ways, we're gonna be learning a lot about God. I hope that we do that in every sermon. But in particular today, we're gonna be looking at God as he reveals himself through the prophets of the Old Testament. Hebrews 1, we look at the New Testament in the very first kind of verses in the book of Hebrews. Uh, we get a sign and an understanding of what God was doing in the Old Testament. For Hebrews is a New Testament book and often quotes from the Old Testament tying it into the New and to its relevance. But in Hebrews 1, verses 1 and 2, it says, long ago in a galaxy far, far away. Okay, now I won't for some of you Star Wars fans. Some of you are like, whoa, I don't get that. Okay, um, Hebrews 1, long ago at many times and in many ways. That's a understatement, right? God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. We see that this was a long time ago as he's writing this. God spoke to us through our, to the fathers, our forefathers, our offspring, by the prophets. But in these last days, the next verse says, but in these last days, now, he has spoken to us by his son. Through Jesus Christ, you could say the final prophet, he speaks to us by his son whom he appointed as the heir of all things. That all the prophets and all of their teaching is preaching and speaking a message that is leading to Jesus because Jesus is the heir of all of that authority and message. Through him also he created the world. I just want us to think and reflect on how God has used the variety of characters in the Old Testament. All of these prophets to, to tie into this grand story and massive meta-narrative of how God is teaching us about himself and about Jesus Christ as the savior of the world. So we look back in the days of the prophets and we see God and we see the message of salvation and we see our deep need for a savior and our inability to save ourselves as the message we see in Kings and Chronicles is only reflected here today in our own culture surrounding us. We need Jesus today just like they needed Jesus then. And we believe in these things, we trust in these things, we, we learn and we think through these Old Testament prophets. So we look kind of in an introduction so we think about this idea before we jump into uh, some of these uh, passages. We think about a little bit of the confusing nature of the prophets in that we have a trouble today, especially I'm speaking for myself, of what is a prophet and what is prophecy. 
there are many ways to look at this, but I think especially when we think about what a prophet did in the Old Testament, that's very important for us when we look at this passage of scriptures. Josh spoke about last week, the days of the kings, where God allowed Israel to adopt the practices of the surrounding nations through and, and adopt a king, a Saul, a David, a Solomon, a Rehoboam, a Jeroboam, a Ahab, Joash, Josiah, these kings that led the nation in that political way. Yet there is the kingdom that split into a northern and southern kingdom and the law was very much forgotten during this time. And yet during this time of darkness and division, God speaks to his people. He does not leave them alone. He speaks to them directly through the prophets. He warns them. He treats them like his children. He is a loving father who warns them of dangers that they are headed into of false worship, most often idolatry. He disciplines them like a loving father would, but all along through every step of the way, he constantly in almost every book of the Old Testament, he reminds them of his intense love for them his intense loyal love, his steadfast love, and he constantly gives them hope, hope after hope after hope. After he sends prophet after prophet after prophet to the northern kingdom, to the southern kingdom, to this king, to that king, to this people group, to that people group, he is sending prophet after prophet to those who are uh, in the divided kingdom, to those who are in exile, he sends prophets, and to those who are returning from exile, he sends certain prophets to be God's voice to the people. Isaiah 6 talks about how, how Isaiah uh, reflects upon a vision that he receives and how he has received the call of God. For to whom shall I send? To whom will go for me? And he says, Isaiah responds, Hineni, here I am, send me. And then it says, I will send you to my people to be a voice. And then in Jeremiah, Jeremiah receives a similar call. And God tells Jeremiah in Jeremiah 1, I have appointed you to be a prophet to the nations. I've appointed you. I've selected you, Jeremiah. Jeremiah says, I, I'm not good at speaking. Very similar to Moses. I'm not really good at speaking. I don't know. And I, I'm young. I'm too young. And God says, do not, do not say that I am only a youth. Do not say this. For rather, whatever I command you to say, you will speak for me. Jeremiah 1. Jeremiah 1, 9 actually says this. Behold, I have put my words in your mouth, he says to Jeremiah. So these prophets are speaking, are the mouthpiece for God as he speaks through them to a people in desperate need of truth and understanding of God's word. Would the audience listen? Would they receive and return and repent and follow God's law? Well, that kind of ebbs and flows with prophet and king. The leadership often you'll see leads the people one way or another, just like he did with Adam and Eve. He presented them with a message and he, they had a choice to follow or obey. God constantly is long-suffering and patient with his people. He presents them with a message. He presents them with truth. He warns them and, and he challenges them to be careful and then he will discipline. And yet he always lovingly will return to his people and restore them again. And so for us to kind of understand this, this kind of grand archetype narrative for all of the prophets, it's helpful to have this kind of living in your headspace as we look at the prophets this Sunday and next Sunday. 
as we kind of examine each one, I've, I've made up a few slides. The first one we're gonna show for you today is just gonna be a little bit helpful, I think, for us as we look at all of the prophets in general. And we're only gonna be looking at a few, and I'm not even gonna be able to cover all of these in two messages, but we're just looking at a few of them but for us to have a mindset that when we look at these prophets, it's important for us to think about what the content of their message is, but also who is speaking and when they're speaking. And so just to start, we have these early prophets that are written early, and you'll notice in your Bible, this is not the order that they are in in your Bible. That's why it's so often confusing for us, for we think the Bible's like chronological, like you begin at the beginning, you end at the end, right? Uh, but, but these are listed by minor and major prophets in your Bible. A major prophet just means it's long right? Minor prophet means it's short. That's literally it, okay? So you have the major ones, Isaiah and Jeremiah, where wicked long, and then the Obadiah, which is like a page, okay? So major and minor, but, but the way they're actually organized um, by timeline can be very helpful for us as we think about the early prophets of Joel and Jonah to the northern and to Assyria. The eighth century of Amos and Hosea are really the two main written prophets that we have to the northern kingdom. Everyone else is to the southern kingdom or to the people in exile or post-exile. And so we have this Amos and Hosea are sent to the northern kingdom, kind of the last ditch efforts, like you guys better turn around because if you don't, the Assyrians are coming. And so Isaiah, uh, Hosea and Amos, and then we have Isaiah and Micah, Zephaniah, Jeremiah, Nahum, Habakkuk, all uh, prophets to the southern kingdom of Jerusalem and Judah and to those kings. And so then after that, we have the people being taken away into exile. The Assyrians come in in 722 and wipe out the northern kingdom. In 586 BC, the Babylonians come in and wipe out the southern kingdom and take away the people of God from the promised land into a foreign land like slaves to live in Babylon. And they're enslaved in exile in Babylon. That's where you get books like Daniel, who's living under King Nebuchadnezzar. And when you get book, uh, prophets like Ezekiel and Obadiah who are writing to the people in exile. And then post-exile, after they're sent back into the land, they're coming back into the land where you get stories like Nehemiah and Ezra and all of those. You get the prophets that are speaking to the people of God as they return back to the land, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. Malachi would be often the latest book that we have. And after Malachi, we'll talk about it later, but there is dead silence for almost 400 or so years until Jesus comes in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in that time. So in this, it helps us get a little bit of a sense of what's going on. Now, who are the prophets? What are they doing? But then what is their message? What is it that prophecy is really all about? It's unique literature. It's unique storylines. It's unique in that when we read history or we read the gospels or we read an epistle or we read poetry of Psalms, then when we read Ezekiel, it's very, very different. Some like Elijah and Elisha who do, not, who do not have written prophecies, but the story of their history is written in Kings and Chronicles, and it writes of them that they'd worked grand miracles and signs. Some interpreted dreams like Daniel and others, and yet others did no miracle whatsoever but preached the same message over and over. Jonah could be one of those as he in, walked through a miracle but had a very short sermon to the people of Assyria. Some interpreted dreams, some saw visions and had dreams themselves. Others lived out intense physical demonstrations 
Ezekiel's a good demonstration where he actually built like a little Lego model. You guys ever play with Legos? He built a little model. Now, they didn't have Legos back then, but he built a little stone model of Jerusalem. God commanded him in, in Ezekiel chapter four. Build a stone model of Jerusalem and lay down next to that model of Jerusalem for 430 days and lay down to there and then that's when you get the story of, of him lying down as he's surrounding the city like the city would be sieged. And he is giving a physical sermon that the little city of Jerusalem will be surrounded on all sides by your enemies. If you do not turn to me, the city will be laid siege to and destroyed. So Ezekiel has his little Lego set and day after day he's preaching this message. Then that's where you get the story of him making the Ezekiel bread. And I know today we, it's like a modern diet kind of thing we try to do, but, but none of, no one really makes Ezekiel bread like it's written in Ezekiel chapter four. Maybe you're familiar. He takes this really gross tasting bread and uh, he cooks it over human dung each day and he eats that, you know? But for some reason, all the diets that I see online for Ezekiel bread never include that part, but anyways. Um, but when we see this demonstration of his actual physical demonstration of God's message, that it was a demonstration of the reproach that was coming upon God's people. That day after day, I'm gonna be eating this dry bread. There will be no wood to cook it over. There will be a barren wasteland. You'll be sieged upon all sides. Turn back to God, repent of your sin, and he will return to you and he will forgive you. So there is sometimes intense physical demonstrations. Sometimes it was prophecy or preaching God's word. It was a variety of different ways, and yet sometimes when we read the prophecies, we must understand that sometimes they're preaching to us in a, in a very near aspect, but then there's also a, a very far fulfillment of these prophecies and messages. And have you ever seen the Sesame Street? Near, and then a guy Gonzo runs away or whatever he is. Far, right? Near, far. Every time you read a prophecy, you read Ezekiel, you read Isaiah, you read Jeremiah, you read Hosea. When you read those passages, very often they have kind of this juxtaposition of there's a near aspect to what they're saying. This is going to happen to you, King Ahab, unless you return. And yet in that very same prophecy that he gives in Isaiah 7, to you also, Bethlehem, will come a ruler who will be born in Bethlehem. There's often this real sense, born of a virgin, this born in Bethlehem, this born ruler who will come, and yet there's this sense that one day we're looking forward to that fulfillment of Jesus Christ who will be born in Bethlehem, born of a virgin. And we see that there's this near uh, fulfillment and far aspect reaching, or this sense of the day of the Lord that is coming is spoken about in Joel that is going to come for the people of Israel. God's judgment is going to come to you like locusts will come and destroy your nation. And yet there's also the sense that the day the Lord is coming one day when he returns for all of people. And so there's a challenge to try to understand what is the nearness of it and what is the farness of it and how to understand it. And so then we're also left with the task of trying to grasp what it is we're truly saying in regards to prophecy for is it this, uh, sometimes in our hearts and minds we think of a prophet like a, like a little fortune teller with a turban as they have this little thing and they've got this globe and, and they come in and they, they tell the fortune of what's gonna happen or a nice little Chinese uh, cookie, right? A little fortune cookie that you open up and it tells you your fortune and, uh, or it's like tarot cards or palm reading or whatever. You know? so, I mean, maybe it's just me, but maybe sometimes that's in my head when I think about what a prophet did. When, when we look at and examine what the prophet spoke about, 
we find that only 20% of the prophet's message was foretelling. Okay, so you know what I'm saying? Foretelling, like telling the future of what would happen in the sense that God was saying, this will happen to your nation, and it happened. 20%. 80% of the messages in which are given in the prophets are actually forthtelling. Simply preaching what God is desiring them to say in this, this kind of preaching foretelling. So 20% this foretelling, 80% foretelling. It was a conglomeration of both. And so much of what a prophet did would have been similar to even probably even what a preacher does today. As we foretell much of what will happen in the future as we look in the scripture and we can kind of in this sense foretell God's plan and yet we also foretell the word of God and the truth that he has laid out for us very clearly. And the prophet preacher kind of expectation here is probably quite similar. And so when we look at this, I also want us to grasp before we jump into the passage, one last slide. And the slide is just going to help us understand what this message is. Almost in every book, we can look at this next slide, and I think we can, we can get a better grasp as to, yes, who the prophets are, but what their message really was. The, this, this graph here is almost in every single book, major and minor prophet, you will be able to find this narrative, this call for repentance, this desire yet in that message of repentance that if you return, God will be gracious to you and forgive you. And yet, if you don't, I am giving you a warning. God will judge you. He keeps his promises and he will not be mocked. And yet, in spite of that judgment that will come upon you for your disobedience, remember there's always hope. For God will restore you. He keeps his promises and he will provide redemption. This message is in over and over and over. God con- God's law condemns you. The prophet is pointing out the areas in which your sin condemns you. He is a jealous God, a holy God. You dip into idolatry and I can guarantee you, you will find judgment. But remember, our God is not ready and quick to anger, but he is slow, he is patient, he is long-suffering. Return to him. God will forgive you. He is rich in mercy. His grace will be poured out upon you as a people if you return to him. And then, warning, God will judge. He is not mocked. He will send you into exile if you do not turn back to him. And yet, remember, even in exile, I have a plan for you a plan to restore you, a plan for hope, a plan for your welfare. I have a plan for you. There is always hope for God's people. He will keep his promises. He will restore you, redeem you, and make you new again. This is the message that I, if I could, just this is the sense. This is the Cliff Notes version of every single prophecy, every prophet, major, minor, that you're gonna read. And yet what we're gonna do here in our remaining time Let's look at a few, especially of the minor prophets, probably ones that you're a little bit more unknown with, uh, that you're not as familiar with, and we're gonna give you literally the Cliff cliff Notes version. Uh, Somebody else was sharing with me the other idea, there's an app I think you can get called the uh, Blinkist app, and it, it basically summarizes books for you in a short version. And so you can listen to an audiobook and read like a 250-page book in like 50 pages, okay? It gives you all the highlighted versions so you can skip all over the stuff you don't need. Some of you are like, that's the way to read books right there, you know? And just get the highlighted version, the cliff notes, the blinkest version of it all. We get the story of God uh, in these grand stories, yet they're shrunk down here into the prophets, where we get this long story short in every little man or prophet. 
and that gives us God's perspective, his words, how he's going to fix this, and yet we also get a very keen insight into the heart of God. We see in the prophets his beautiful heart, his holiness that cannot encounter this sinful rebellion, it must be punished, and yet his amazing grace is always present, and I think it's more present in the prophets than we are, uh, than we really realize. So the first prophet I wanna look at is the book of Amos. And what we're gonna be doing, like I said, I hope you guys can keep up with me. We're literally gonna be kind of running through some of these prophets, looking at some of their messages and what they're saying to us. And the first one is Amos, where in Amos we find that he is one of the major or the two main prophets sent to the northern kingdom. And he goes out from among the shepherds of Tekoa into the north, and he delivers a message of intensity and directness. He says, listen up to this message. And he actually says in Amos 4.1, you can try this as a slam sometime. Listen up to this message, you cows of Bashan, who are in the hills of Samaria. That's how he describes the people, okay? So uh, Amos said it, I didn't, okay? Uh, but he, he calls the cows of Bashan to repent, to repent. He says in Amos 3.2, that you only have I known among the families of the earth Therefore, like, you are my family, therefore I will punish you for all of your iniquities. Because you are close, you have the law, you have my presence dwelling within you, I will punish you, I will discipline you, I will chastise you, like, unlike the other nations, for they do not have what you have. And then he calls them to return. In Amos chapter four, he gives a message of how he has brought um, physical distress upon the nation and yet it has not caused them to return to God as it should. He, he says that he has brought a lack of bread and yet in verse six of Amos four, you did not return to me. Uh, verse seven, he says, I withheld the rain from you and yet you did not return to me as he says in verse eight. I struck you with blight and mildew and your many gardens and yards were de uh, devoured, yet you did not return to me. I sent pestilence among you and yet you did not return to me. I overthrew some of you and yet you did not return to me. And he says, return, return, for thus says the Lord in chapter five, verse four, he gives this amazing message. It's a simple message. Though you have not returned to me, there's still time. In Amos 5, 4, he says, seek the Lord and live. I love the simplicity of that. Seek the Lord and live. So all you have to do, seek the Lord and you will live. Seek the Lord and live. He says it over and over. Hate evil, love good, establish justice in your gate. Seek the Lord and live. Then he gives a famous, well-known illustration of warning. But if they do not seek the Lord and live, the Lord will measure them in their faithfulness. He gives what's called, as Amos gives his plumb line illustration. You know what a plumb line is. Many of you are probably want better at it than I am. I'm <laughs> more familiar with a plumb line. It is a way to measure the foundation of something, whether if it's straight or crooked. It's been used for millennia. Plumb line was used then, even now in some ways. We have lasers and all these other things. But almost here as he tells them that, that this is foundational wall that you're building upon is not straight. God has come in with a divine plumb line and he has measured you, he has found you wanting, and you are crooked and leaning. If you do not return and restore that wall to its straightness, it will fall over and crash in ruin. I am giving you a warning, he says. Straighten up, 
or God will judge this wall. So in Amos 5.27, he says, I will send you into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. And yet, all of this, you're saying, well, Jordan, where's the hope? Where's the kindness here? Where's the grace? Where's the, where's the loving encouragement that I need for my Sunday morning? Well, we find in the very end of Amos, just like it is in almost all the minor prophets, at the very end, we get the, the ray of hope. Look at Amos 9, verse 11 with me. Amos 9 verse 11 is just an incredible passage. It brings me great comfort. Amos 9 11 says, in that day I will raise up the booth of David, the tent of David. You could say the offspring of David. That is fallen. I will repair its breaches. This is like a wall. I will raise it up in its ruins. I will rebuild it as the days of old that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name. Verse 13 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper, the treader of the grapes who sows the seed. The mountain shall drip sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with it. Look at verse 14. I will restore. Who will restore? God will restore. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities that inhabit them. Look at the hope for these people. They shall plant vineyards, they will drink their wine, they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. Verse 15, I will plant them on their land and they will never again be uprooted. Out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. What an incredible, powerful passage. It's hope. Though your land will be laid waste to, I am the one who will restore you back to it one day. You will rebuild and restore. We know that our God is a restoring God. He keeps his promises. He redeems his people. And just like one day, he will restore us even through Jesus, the final restoration, the one who breaks down the walls of hostility and restores us and reconciles us in right relationship again. This is how God works. This is his character of the Old Testament and the character of the new. A God of hope, a God of restoration. And I don't want you to miss this. When we walk through these next couple of ones, I want you to, I hope it's very clear for you that if all you get out from today, if some of the stuff that we've talked about is too big or too complicated for you, I want you to get that simply even in the old and in the new, throughout the Bible, we have one God that we worship and God never leaves his people without hope. There is always a message of hope and the hope is found in him alone. He always gives them hope and he calls them to put their faith in him and he will supply them with all they need. This is really the message of the Bible to come and return to God. He is our only hope. This is the message we see in almost every single prophet that we read. The next one is in a Hosea. I won't spend too much time on this because I've preached on this one in the past, but in the book of Hosea, we get a very uh, powerful message that is both physically lived out in Hosea's life and preached through his lips. But he physically lives an intense story. Some of you are very familiar with this. In the book of Hosea, we see that Hosea, again, is a, is a prophet to the northern kingdom. He's often called the last chance prophet. Like, this is your last chance. You don't see and return to this. There, there's nothing left. So Hosea is in his life an example. He, he gives a prophetic declaration of the sin and the adultery of Israel is lived out through Hosea's life literally with his marriage to Gomer. Familiar with this? Hosea and Gomer. 
this message of love. Hosea is a message of love, and we often think of this God of the Old Testament being angry and full of wrath all the time, and we forget to look at this book of Hosea. And God tells him, ultimately, God tells Hosea to marry a prostitute whose name is Gomer, who is repeatedly unfaithful to Hosea, yet he has three children with Gomer, and God names them Jezreel, which means this God scattering this valley of war, probably not a very good name, kind of like naming your child today, uh, Judas or something. And then um, the next one, he says, your next child you have will be named No Mercy. That's the child's name. And then the next name of the child is, uh, the third child is Not My People. Not My People. Very, very nice names for the kids, right? Israel here is compared to an adulterous woman who is constantly uh, ha- through committing adultery against God. Gomer leaves Hosea and eventually goes back into prostitution, ends up enslaved by another man. God commands to Hosea to go and love her again, buy her back, redeem her, and restore her to freedom and to goodness. Free her, save her. God uses Hosea to demonstrate his amazing, faithful love despite our repeated unfaithfulness. And in this powerful passage, in Hosea chapter two, verse 19, it says this, and I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and in steadfast love and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord And then skip down to verse 22. And the earth shall answer the grain and the wine and the oil. They shall answer Jezreel. They shall say to her, and I will sow her for myself in the land. And then I will say in verse 23, and I will have mercy on your daughter, no mercy. I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. This is a God of faithful, loyal love even when we are unfaithful and do not love in return. God's grace, his mercy, and his forgiveness for his beloved people is seen strikingly in the example and the message of Hosea and Gomer. And he will say to us, who deserve no mercy, he will say, I will give you mercy. To us who were not a people of God, we were not in that family, we are not holy like God, he will say, you are my people. You are a people of violence and war. You are a people of Jezreel. But I will make you a people of shalom and peace and goodness and life and abundance. This is the God who redeems a people who do not deserve this grace. It's only by his grace. Thank God that he is like that. For in Hosea eleven nine, 9, he actually says, I will not again destroy you like Ephraim. I will not do it, for I am God, not a man. See, God loves like God. His love is godly love, not man's love. No. For we would not be like this. Thank God that he is a God of grace. The next one, real quick, is uh, Joel, the book of Joel. I know some of you, if you have a, an old school leather-bound Bible like me, you're trying to flip around and try to find these things, all right? But in Joel, the book of Joel, you have uh, this incredible storyline that I mentioned earlier of, of this locust coming in and destroying and eating up the entire land. And Joel's sermon is preached. He gives this illustration of the locusts. The locusts come, they destroy, they eat, they lay everything barren and waste. 
And yet in Joel 2, he gives this incredible picture that I absolutely find, uh, I don't know, it's just very helpful to me that in this repenting message, he tells them like we've been looking at that little graph, the repent, he tells them to return. But the way he tells them to return is, is incredibly powerful and helpful for me even as I think through it. Look at Joel 2 verse 12. He says, yet even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and with mourning. And then verse 13, after uh, Joel 2, 12, verse 13 says, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Turn to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relents over disaster. Is this the angry God that we hear about all the time? No, this is a God of beauty, of grace, of goodness, of love. Rend your hearts, he says, people, not your garments. I don't want all your outward external conformity. I want your heart. Will you give me your heart? Rend it, tear it. Instead of tearing your clothes and pouring sackcloth and ashes over your head and outwardly everyone thinks you're doing one thing, I want your heart desire not external conformity. He wants our heart, not our head. He wants you. The law points us to a God that shows us as our schoolmaster that we don't measure up. And yet, it was a gift, not a burden to us. Those of us who have broken the law must rent, rend our hearts and return to him, and he will forgive. The warning is ultimately that if we do not endure, the day of the Lord will come. And yet, the hope in this message is in Joel 2, verse 25, it says in Joel 2.25 that if you rend your hearts that, that I will restore to you the years that the swarming locusts have eaten. I will restore the years that have been lost. And then he says, not only will I restore those years, I will in this barren wasteland, I will send to you, this is the prophecy of what happens in Acts chapter two at Pentecost. In Joel two, he says, it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons, your daughters shall prophesy, your old man will dream dreams, your young men shall see visions, even male, female servants. In those days, I will pour out my spirit. Everyone, the church will be filled with the Spirit of God. On Pentecost this happened, this barren wasteland, dry as a desert, has received the springs of living water and now all people, men and women, slaves, free, young and old, will receive the Spirit of God and grow up into maturity. This is, this is the great message that we have here in the Old Testament of the life-giving Spirit that comes in the new. An incredible story where we get a picture, an insight of what the church will look like one day when he returns. Then we get these last two that I wanna look at before we conclude is this story of Habakkuk. The story of Habakkuk is a, an incredible one where at the end of Habakkuk, uh, we get an incredible story, and yet it's a very short uh, book. It's one that we uh, maybe aren't really as familiar with, and it's a storyline that is powerful. For Habakkuk is warning them, he's known as the complaining prophet. Maybe some of you feel like that yourselves, you know? You're like, I resonate with that one. Uh, he's the complaining prophet, the questioning prophet. He is questioning God as to how God could do this. How could God use a wicked people to judge the righteous people of God or the less wicked people? How could God use the more wicked Babylonians to judge the less wicked Israelites? How could he do that? And he complains or questions God and, and, and God is answering him. 
His answer is ultimately that you trust me for the righteous or the just shall live by faith. You have faith, you trust in me. For the day will come because of your faith that one day the whole earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea, he says. And yet we get in Habakkuk uh, chapter three this incredible prayer. And he says this phrase in Habakkuk three that in wrath, Lord, in your wrath, remember your mercy. Praying to God that though we know the Babylonians are at our doorstep, though your judgment seems to be at hand, Lord, in your wrath, remember your mercy on your people. It's an incredible prayer and he ends with these statements that if I'm not mistaken, a few months ago, I believe Lars Stenerson shared this as a prayer and share and I remember it, it's powerful. Habakkuk 3 verse 17 says, though the fig tree should not blossom. Just, just picture the people of God. They, they have drifted far from God. They have been warned time after time. Picture a, a, a wasteland, a, a desert, Though the fig tree is not blossoming, nor f- there's no fruit on the vines, there's nothing to w- rejoice over the prosperity, the produce of the olive has failed, the, the fields are yielding no food, we're starving. Though the flock be cut off from the folds, though there's no herd in the stalls, there's no cash in the bank. <laughs> Verse 18, yet, yet what? I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. For God, the Lord, is my strength, and he is the one who makes my feet like swift like the deer's and makes me tread on high places. This is the song or the prayer, the message of Habakkuk when he, as though he has faced all of these things, he rejoices in the Lord still, even in the darkest and most barren of times. That gives us great hope in our times. I don't know where you are today. But this is a comforting message in those barren, hard, difficult times of trials that we can still rejoice in God and take joy in the God for he is our salvation and he is all that we need. This is similar to the message of Zephaniah at the end of Zephaniah, verse three, chapter three, verse 17. We get a similar message of hope that even though all of this is going to happen, he says at the end of Zephaniah, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love and he will exult over you with loud singing. These are just a few of the minor prophets I've given you. And again, I'm trying to teach you today that the God that we, that so many people like to, to create, this God who is angry and just cannot wait to strike you down with lightning. It was just lording over you, just hoping you make a mistake so he can knock you out of the way. It's just not the caricature of what we see of God in the Old Testament. And in every minor prophet, it is amazing, the powerful message of hope that we see over and over. Yes, he's a jealous God because he's holy. And yes, he's a chastening God because he loves his people and his family. But yet he's a loving God and a steadfast in it. And most of all, what I found powerfully encouraging this week is that he is a pardoning God and he alone will save. I want you to look at our final book, Micah, the book of Micah. From the book of Micah, we see a similar story that we've looked at even up until this time. The question that Micah answers is, who is a pardoning God like you? Who is a God like you? It's almost at the end of his book of Micah, he is just blown away and can't even imagine. There is nothing on earth like you. Yes, there is a message of repentance in this story in Micah 2, uh, Micah chapter 1. He tells the people to repent for the coming and destruction is at hand. 
He tells them to return. He tells them and gives them a, a warning. And yes, he even tells them return because ultimately you haven't kept the law, but have you and can you keep the heart of the law? For what does the Lord require of you? What is the whole point of the law? To do justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. No, you don't know all the laws for it is not taught to you people of Israel. But can you simply summarize the law in one statement? Do justice, love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Do that, return to God, and he will forgive you. This is his message. Micah is preaching this over and over, giving them a warning. He gives them this amazing message of hope that one day the temple will be restored, this aspect of all nations will come to Mount Zion in this spiritual temple. He tells them that the nation will one day assemble together in chapter four and gather around once again. And then we get this amazing message in Micah 5 that from Bethlehem shall come forth a ruler of old, of ancient of days. From Bethlehem will bring forth this ruler, this Jesus Christ, this sign of the Messiah. We get even this Old Testament book. But I want us to look at the final end here in Micah 7. I want you to look at Micah 7 where we say Micah is coming to you basically in chapter seven he says in, in, um, in verse uh, seven really he says, I, but as for me I will look to the Lord and I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. So he says if you don't return I at least will wait for my salvation because when I think about God he says in verse 18 a very powerful passage. He says who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity, passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob, and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. This message of Micah, of pure grace, of pardoning. There's a great hymn that says, who is a pardoning God like you? So a grace, who has grace so rich and free? There is no one else, no place on earth that has a well so deep like this that would take our grave violence and rebellion against God and he would take that and cast it into the depths of the sea and remember it no more and forgive you and restore you and redeem you and love you no matter what your past might say about you. The God of Micah, the God of Joel, the God of Habakkuk, of Isaiah and Jeremiah is also the God here of Jeffrey who will forgive you, who will say to you, I will pardon your iniquity because of my son Jesus Christ. Return to me. Return to me, O people who have left me. Return and I will love you. I will pour my grace upon you. I do not hold my anger forever, but I give you my forgiveness. And I will have compassion on you. I will take your iniquities and I will tread on them underfoot. Nay, I will do even worse. I will throw them to the bottom of the sea and I will show my faithfulness to you. This is our God. This is who we come before a table today and we come before a representation of all that he has done on the cross. His body was given for us, his blood was shed for us and his grace was, was bestowed to you today. Won't you believe and trust in him? Have faith in this God. He loves you, he cares for you and he will pardon for who is a pardoning God like him.